coming up on Philosophy Talk. You know, it's just occurred to me we really haven't had a completely successful test of this equipment. I blame myself. So do I. Freedom, blame, and resentment. If it turned out that there was no such thing as free will, would it ever be appropriate to blame someone for their actions? Jan, if boys don't find you attractive, don't blame it on me. Does a good explanation of somebody's action make it wrong to resent them? I can't believe you put it off until today, and then we couldn't do anything because Elaine runs out to apologize to a virgin, crosses against a light and knocks over a Chinese delivery boy. Are we genetically programmed to react emotionally to perceived injuries? Now, at the risk of being unpopular, this reporter places the blame for all of this squarely on you. Can we ever let go of blame and resentment? My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Our guest is Pamela Hieronymi from UCLA. Freedom, blame, and resentment, coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. We're continuing conversations that start at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. That's where Ken and I teach philosophy. Today our topic is a threesome, freedom, blame, and resentment. Let me start in the middle of this threesome, Ken, with blame. We blame people when they do bad things. Blame often leads to, and is accompanied by, the third thing in our list, resentment, especially when we're directly and personally harmed by another person. Yeah, right. Some reckless jerk is darting in and out of traffic. He cuts me off, causing me my car to spin out of control. Now, we all blame him. We kind of blame him collectively for being reckless. But more than that, as the directly harmed party, I personally feel an intense and visceral sense of a resentment toward him that others may not feel. Now, we blame people and resent people for things they're responsible for. They make a decision, and we think their decision is wrong. When they decide, we say they're free. That brings up the third term in our triumvirate that we're talking about. So by looking at when we blame people and when we resent people, uh, we can see when we think they're free and when they th when we think they're not free. Yeah, except you got to be careful, John, because there are two different senses of blame. There's a non-moral sense and a moral sense. In the moral sense, to say that one thing is to blame for another is really just to say that one thing caused the other. That applies to even inanimate things. People talk about the rise in obesity causing the increase in diabetes. Oh, I might blame my dog for knocking over the flower pot, but she's not morally responsible. Well, I think you're right, Ken. Non-moral blame has nothing or almost nothing to do with freedom or with resentment. You may be upset at your dog for knocking over the flower pot, but probably you don't resent her. So moral blame and personal resentment are reserved for special kinds of actions performed by special kinds of creatures, creatures like us and creatures unlike the dog. Let's compare the dog that knocked over the flower pot to the jerk behind the wheel that cut you off and caused you to spin out. If we can isolate the differences, we can understand resentment, why it's appropriate in the one case, but not the other. Oh, that's easy. I learned this at Notre Dame, John. It's the difference between metaphysically free action and causal determined action. The jerk did what he did freely. That is, he wasn't causally determined to do what he did, and that means he could have acted otherwise, and that's why it's all right to hold him responsible. That's why I resent him, too. Now, the dog, on the other hand, the dog didn't choose. The dog can't choose. She just acts, and the way she acts is strictly determined by her doggy nature, and that's why I don't hold her morally responsible and don't resent her. Ken, you've done awfully well in, in philosophy in spite of having your natural instincts and mastery of our concepts 
screwed up by Notre Dame. <laughs> I mean, that's way too metaphysical. Blame and resentment have nothing to do with metaphysics. It's about respect and disrespect. Take the jerk. He presumably saw the space between you and the next car, considered the costs and benefits of cutting you off versus slowing down, and in full knowledge of that fact, and as a result of his deliberation, still cut you off. Your rights and your well-being didn't count appropriately in his calculations. That's why you resent him. So you know, the, you saying the jerk's disrespect for me is, is was his not giving my my uh, my rights and well-being due respect, as it were, in his reasoning. And then you're saying I resent him basically basically because I'm offended by the attitude toward me his actions uh, express. Is that is that it? Exactly, and, and that's the dimension in which the jerk differs from the dog, not some metaphysical mumbo-jumbo. The dog expresses no will towards you at all, neither goodwill nor ill will. Your dog, intelligent as she must be for a dog, probably lacks the capacity to think much at all about your rights and your well-being. In knocking over the flower parts, she's not expressing a lack of a concern for you. She's just being her rambunctious doggy self. No point in your resenting her for that. Okay, but how does that show that the questions they taught me to think about at Notre Dame, metaphysical questions about freedom and determinism, are irrelevant to issues about blame and resentment? I don't get that yet, John. Well, think about what would excuse a reckless driver and put off your resentment. It's, it's not just that it would be caused, it would be how it was caused. It has nothing to do with determinism or causation. Suppose he didn't see you and that he cut you off accidentally, or that he was really trying to get out of the way of a fast-approaching emergency vehicle cutting in front of you, and that was the only way he could do that. Well, well, you know, I, I think I'd still be upset, but I can see your point. That might, you know, that might tamp down my resentment a bit. You wouldn't resent him because a bad or lack of a, a good attitude towards you wouldn't be part of the causal history of the action. What really matters for blame and resentment is the kind of attitude that leads to the act, the character of the will that's expressed in the other person's actions towards you, whether the action was causally determined or whatever metaphysically free might mean, is irrelevant. Well, you know, I'm not totally convinced, John. But you know what? I grant you there are lots of issues here. Like one is, what exactly are resentment and blame anyway? And what exactly are we responding to in another person when we either resent them or blame them or both? Is there more to say about the difference between creatures like us who are sometimes appropriate objects of resentment and creatures like my dog who are never appropriate objects of resentment? And what about excuses? Is to explain an action automatically to excuse it? Good questions all, John. And our search for some answers? Well, that begins with our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash. We sent her out to investigate a case of resentment gone wild. She files this report. If you're looking for people harboring grudges, petty resentments, hurt feelings, and broken hearts, you might find them at a high school. You just see like a really like really childish arguments like like oh she stepped on my shoe now we're beefing for the rest of the year because this one person stepped on my shoe. I've been vaxxed out a lot of times, so that's why you know I have a small circle of people. Some girl thought I liked her guy, and then you know how high school drama gets, and then I was just like. It's not even like that, and she totally hated me. She still hates me, I think, now. If you've ever been wronged, you know how hard it can be to forgive. Actually, you, you kind of feel like you want to punish them and make them feel what they make you feel. Rick asked to go by his first name only because of the sensitive nature of his story. It's not enough to tell them that you feel bad. It's not enough. You've got to make them feel what you felt. 
Rick's tale of resentment and revenge took place back in the 70s at a small fine arts college where he dated a girl he calls Katie. He jumped into the relationship against his better judgment. I thought, you know, this girl's trouble, but she's a lot of fun. And I think perhaps she probably chose me more than I chose her. Things were going pretty well for a while. Then Rick left college early to start a job. The couple decided they'd stay together, but since it was the 70s, they decided to give each other certain freedoms. I told her, I said, now that I, I know that I've been your first conjugal boyfriend, and I know that this is probably a very interesting time for you, and I don't blame you for being interested in what else is out there. So I, I beg you only this, just you can have sex with anybody you want, just don't make it one of my friends. Two weeks later, Rick's phone rang. It was Katie calling to tell him she'd hooked up with Rick's good friend, Danny. And I was like, oh God, really? I, I knew this had happened and I guess I can't do anything about it. So, all right, so there you go. And uh, we'll talk later. And hung up and immediately thought, I'm gonna do something about this. Right then, Rick decided he would get his revenge. First order of business, make Katie suffer. I hunted down her childhood best friend and seduced her. Then Rick began the second part of his revenge fantasy, this time targeting Danny. Danny had a girlfriend, and I planned for a year to sleep with Danny's girlfriend. First, Rick became friends with Danny's girlfriend's best friend, and he seduced her. Eventually, he became close with Danny's girlfriend. So close, his revenge was almost complete. Something happened. Now, I guess it, you'd, you'd say, like, you know, my better angels came about. And I said, what am I doing? What am I doing? I've worked for a year to do this, and I'm here. And it's just not, it's not me. So Rick said, I'm sorry, you're a great gal, but I'm not a great guy. And he left. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Kept going through my head. And I don't know my own limitations. I'm suddenly doing things that I never thought I would do. After walking away from his best friend's girlfriend, Rick says he was confused for a few weeks. He didn't feel quite ready to forgive, but he no longer felt the need for revenge. He decided to confront Danny. Rick sat his friend down and told him everything. How over a year ago, he had slept with my girlfriend and I knew it and there was nothing I could do about it, but that I had systematically gone about seducing his girlfriend. And I got her in bed and I said no because I didn't want to be you. And he like burst into tears. Rick says he learned a lot from the experience. He learned to be guarded with his emotions and he learned he can be a selfish, vengeful person. People are capable of anything. Don't ever say you won't do something because you will do something like this. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. That's Caitlin Esch with a veritable soap opera for our <laughs> listeners. And thank goodness for Rick's better angels, although I think they've got more work to do. I'm John Perry. With me is my fellow Stanford philosopher, Ken Taylor. And we're, today we're talking about freedom, blame, and resentment. We're joined now by Pamela Hieronymi. She's a professor of philosophy at UCLA. She's author of The Will as Reason. Pamela, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thank you. Great to be here. Pamela, you won't resent me, I'm sure, if I ask you what first drew you to questions about freedom and resentment. I've been interested in questions about human freedom pretty much since I started studying philosophy as an, as an undergraduate. I'm fascinated by the difference between um, things that we do and things that happen to us. Uh, so the difference between activity and passivity. Um, it seems to me to mark uh, 
our limits, where we start and where we stop. And, and so one way of thinking about that is by thinking about moral responsibility and, and blame and, and that sort of thing. Well, let's, let's dig in now. Let's start with a question that, that I want your take on. Some creatures seem like appropriate objects of blame and resentment, particular fellow or fellow grown-up normal human beings. Some creatures seem like inappropriate objects, animals, children, people with broken brains. So what's the difference? Uh, there's two differences, I think. One is whether the creature has uh, a will, something that can be thought of as, 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 a, as a mind that makes choices and makes choices for reasons. And the other is whether that will matters in a certain way. Um, and in what way does it, the will have to matter? Well, it has to matter in the way that it, it prompts in us these range of reactions such as, such as resentment. So now some people think... A will is easy because it thinks you have a will. If you have desires, then you could act in your desires. My dog wants food. It goes to get the food. Right. It sounds like to me, though, you mean something kind of highfalutin about uh, by the will. Do you mean something highfalutin? I don't mean anything too highfalutin. No, I'm, I'm, I, I do think that um, that it requires a mind um, and a kind of comp- a, a, a psychology complicated enough to think about another mind and to think about the reasons for which people act and to think about the reasons for which the creature itself acts. But once you have that kind of complexity. Well, kind of have fluid. It's, I mean, it's more than the dog has, right? It's The dog it has desires and it can act on its desires, but it doesn't by your lights have a will. I don't know a lot about what dogs do and don't aren't and aren't <laughs> able to think about. So, but assume that the dog has desires and can act on it, but can't do all this complicated calculation. Then it wouldn't have a will. Then right? it wouldn't have a will. Or you could just you could you could also say it doesn't have a will that matters. It, it doesn't. Yeah, what's matter. the mattering part? Uh, it's it's exactly that the choices or or opinions of the creature are such that it's appropriate to have these sorts of reactions like resentment or gratitude or. Uh, Forgiveness is that a question begging character? I mean, it might you, be. yeah. So, so just treat, read between the lines on this great divide whether freedom requires kind of metaphysical, super contra causal willing, or it's just a matter of how you will, what goes into it, what kind of deliberations. You, you're you're on the latter side. We're going to dig into this one at some length here. Okay. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're talking about freedom, blame, and resentment with Pamela Hieronymi, author of The Will as Reason. In our next segment, we'll explore the nature of blame and resentment more fully and ask when they're called for and when they're not. When resentment is reasonable and when it's not. Plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. You asked my wife for some cabbage, you old rascal. You asked my wife for some cabbage, and you eat just like a savage, you old rascal. <laughs> Resentment towards others, not the same as wishing the rascals were dead. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. We're talking about freedom, blame, and resentment. Have you ever felt resentment towards someone for their actions? What was the basis of your resentment? Do you think uh, resentment and blame can ever be justified and rational, or are they visceral emotional reactions beyond the reach of reason? Our guest is Pamela Hieronymi from UCLA. So, Pamela, let's go to, back to what John was asking you just before the break. You know, he didn't like my earlier thought that we blame people only when they do things of their own free will and, that's, and, and things they aren't causally determined to do. Uh, do you side with John or do you side with me? I'm with John. Oh, shoot. Why? 
for the reasons John gave, that the question is whether the activities of a given creature um, are such that it's appropriate to react in certain ways to them. Um, and it might help if we um, sort of broaden out focus from resentment to notice that there's an entire class of attitudes here. And the dog case, I think it's even starker if you go to things that are um, just brute happenings. So if you're trying to get somewhere and you find a tree, the storm has knocked a tree in your way, you might be angry about that, right? But if you find somebody has slashed your tires, you're going to resent that. Um, if you are, if you win the lottery, you might be really happy, right? But if you're grateful, it seems like that's got to be because somebody's, um, you're thinking that that God or the universe or somebody was looking out for you. So gratitude, resentment, um, there's, a, there's a general class of emotions that, are, that we have in response to our perception of the quality of another's will. So, so in, in, the, in the literature, there's a word for, I think, the position you and I share, which is compatibilism, which is to say that something being free and therefore it being appropriate to blame the person or resent the person is compatible with its being caused, maybe even in the unlikely case that determinism is true, determined. But there is this other position, incompatibilism. We don't want to spend the show on it, but mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about it a little. And there seem to be really thoughtful people out there mm -hmm. uh, who get their work published in leading journals mm -hmm. who think that compatibilism is, is nuts. Uh, yeah, a lot of them were at Notre Dame when <laughs> yeah. I was this. Well, and, and Kant called it a wretched, wretched subterfuge, and William James a quagmire of evasion. Uh, and these people seem to think that, well, if, if I really blame someone for something, it, it, it has to have been the result of a break in the causal fabric of the universe, or at least a special kind of agent causation that only humans can do. And, and my own view is this is a really nutty concept that we probably owe to Christianity. Uh, and these people's intuitions have nothing to do with our ordinary concept of freedom. But what do you say when you encounter students or colleagues that have this view? Well, it's the usual view. It's the, I mean, it's 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 the natural view that people come to when they first start thinking about things. Uh, and though I think it got a lot of help from Christianity, I I actually think that 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 we're led to that view by features of our own decision making. That that when we make a decision, um, we have to make it. That is, we have to think about what to do. And you can't make a decision while thinking about while making a prediction about what you will do. Making a prediction that you will lose the match is different than making a decision to throw the match. Right. Um, and and, and the in the process of making a decision, you can't be thinking of yourself as caused. And that, that leads one to think, the last thing you said, I want to pick up on that. That leads one to think that in some sense my decisions are mine. They're uniquely mine. They're not just happenings within me. Right? They're something I produce. So the will on which I act when I make a decision, that's my will. And what makes it my will is you know, nothing just, it didn't just rise up in me. I did it. That's right. As you're making a decision, it's, it seems to you and it has to seem to you that nothing is making you make that decision, that you are making that decision. Okay, so you and John don't like this view that I learned at my Catholic teacher's knee. What's wrong with this view that says, well, so when you're acting freely, your actions are in some sense entirely up to you because, and weren't forced on you. What's because wrong with to think of an event as an action, as something someone did, 
we have to be able to explain it by appeal to features of that person. And features of people, we generally think, are also explicable in terms of other ordinary features of the world. And if some event is just disconnected from what somebody is like, we don't think it's their action. We think it's something that just happened to them. It was, it was just a, a, a quirk or a anomaly. So, so you're giving the view called agent causation kind of more respectable credentials than I did. I said it was just kind of a, you know, an invention of St. Augustine or one of those guys. You're probably right about that. Uh, I mean, there is a big difference between in deciding to do something and predicting you will do it. And kind of even if you had a book that told you what you were going to do, uh, you'd still have to decide to do it. That's right. Uh, and so, so I guess people and no fo- focus on that and its importance and the, and the idea that, uh, you know, no matter how tempted you are by something, there always does seem to be that thing that people sometimes call contra-causal freedom that comes in. So, so you think that all of that is a kind of a respectable reason for coming to this view, but not really sufficient to justify it. That's right. I think there's a kind of um, per- a, a perception or maybe an illusion, maybe that's too strong, but it may, maybe an illusion that we're under given our the, the way in which we make decisions. So I want to shift back to resentment for one second. Why? Okay. Suppose I grant you and John's approach to this. Why resentment? Why does, I mean, is re- resentment rational? Or resp- somebody decides to do something. Why resentment? That's like a visceral emotional thing. Why not? I don't know. You did wrong. You know, a kind of objective something. Or Why resentment? Uh, well, it's not, it, it is an emotional thing. Uh, it's, it's different than anger. It's more, uh, and it's different than anger because it, in, it includes some sort of claim about a wrong done to you. Sometimes it seems like resentment's just a bad thing. Um, and we think that way when we think about being its object, somebody resenting, resenting us. But it, it is bad that resentment is called for. It's bad to be resented if you didn't, don't deserve it. But you know, take a case where you've actually done something kind of crappy to somebody. If that person just shrugged it off or just responded to it like a tree, like you were an issue to be dealt with and worked around like the tree, you know, you would rightly feel like you're not mattering to that person in in the right kind of way. You would rightly feel like you you don't have the ability to get under this person's skin in the way that we expect to be able to to matter to other You're people. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about freedom, blame, and resentment. We'd love to have your contributions to this conversation. And Kately in San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Kately. Hi, my name's Callie. Callie, okay. Oh. <laughs> I couldn't read it so well. No Hi, Callie. Okay, so about resentment. I think that we, I believe we make a choice to either forgive or, or not forgive. But there's something very delicious <laughs> There's free, forgiveness feels very freeing and very light. There's something very delicious and visceral about resentment. That's a great, uh, great comment. What well, do you okay, think, so you, I, and I'll take my um, your answers off the okay. air. Uh, so there's a lot of things that go under the label. Resentment, like guilt, is a really rich word, and there's a lot of things a lot of people mean um, and 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 put under the topic, um, which I don't necessarily want to. Uh, endorse, right? So, so, so one sort of thing might be a kind of schadenfreude, a kind of pleasure at somebody, at imposing some sort of pain on somebody else. Another thing people mean by resentment sometimes or think about resentment is what I think of as guilt tripping. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel, 
I'm going to direct negative emotion at you to try to make you feel bad, to try to change your behavior in the future, or just, or just to penalize you, just to make you feel bad. Um, those are things we do, but I don't think that those are necessary parts of resentment. Now, now take Rick. His resentment seemed to me take a, took a very unfortunate form where he <laughs> went right. out and, and yeah. tried in a way to damage third parties. Right, the the girlfriend of his girlfriend, and then the girlfriend of the of the of his friend that uh, that his girlfriend slept with. These were innocent parties who would really feel taken if they known that that was the the reason he was getting them into bed. So some kind of resentment is very inappropriate, right? Uh, so so I think that goes right past re- resentment, right into vengeance, and then mm. right into wrongdoing. Okay. So, <laughs> so you think vengeance is different from resentment? I mean, so explain that explain that difference. Uh, so so. Vengeance, like guilt tripping, is aimed. It has an aim. It wants it to hurt the other. Resentment, I think, is just a rea- a reaction to the fact that you have been wronged. But doesn't it have? I mean, I, I I would think it has an aim, at least an evolutionary aim, in the sense that why do we are we prone to resentment one other one another? It's a it's a kind of instrument of a neutral normative control, right? If you could just treat me as an issue, and I, as you said, shrug it off, then that wouldn't give you any reason not to treat me as an issue. So it seems to me that my being prone to resentment, which kind of leads naturally to the desire for vengeance, if not the actions of it. It seems that that itself does have a purpose in our shared lives. So it may be that it has a purpose sociologically in our shared life if we look at the big picture. That's very different than saying my purpose in doing it is to bring about that end. Well, that's true, but you're serving the needs of the species by being prone. I mean, suppose there were creature, free riders who wouldn't feel resentment. You know, that's that's a strange thing, right? I mean, our species needs one another for mutual self for mutual normative regulation. I I like to call it mm-hmm. uh, uh, to, to, for us to be built like this to resent one another. So sometimes I think it's useful to think about trust as a as a parallel case. So it may be that um, you're unreliable. You're hopelessly unreliable. Uh, I'm going to distrust you if you're hopelessly unreliable. That's going to um, make you feel bad. It might change your future behavior. But my reason for distrusting you, it's not my aim to make you feel bad or change your future behavior. My distrust just marks my recognition of your unreliability. So too, I think my resentment just marks my recognition of your disrespect. I I think that's a great analogy. Uh, But... Maybe we'll get back to it. I, I want to go to an email now from one of our old pals, uh, uh, Greg Slater, who says, Sociopaths have minds. They can understand moral arguments and philosophical arguments as well as Ken and John. Well, thanks, Greg. Yeah, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> but they feel... We're proof positive they <laughs> <Yeah>. can. <laughs> but they feel no empathy for the suffering of others, so their understanding does not affect their decisions. So, therefore, if someone has a mind, but for whatever reason, through no fault of their own, was born without empathy, can he be held responsible for his immoral behavior? And Greg gives an example, and I won't mention the example's name. He's a former vice president, but I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... It's a, okay, that's a great question, uh, and, and the, the sociopath is the really hard case. Um, uh, here's what I think happens in that case is that uh, we have in place all the things that make resentment um, appropriate. We have in place 
a mind, a mind that seems to matter, that has shown us disrespect, that seems um, determined, right, uh, to, to show us disrespect, maybe in both senses, and yet is unresponsive to ordinary human interaction. And I think what happens in that case is not that we excuse or forgive, but that we just give up. We just give up. What do you mean, just give up? We treat, I mean, that could mean, I'm not quite sure what that means. That could mean regard them like we regard the dog. The dog, we don't regard, a, you know, it's a complicated creature, but we don't regard it as a, as a, as a fellow person and fully, you know, blah, blah, blah. So do, do That's we, right. we That's shift, what I mean. uh, Strauss and distinguish between the attitude and involvement, the personal attitude and the objective attitude. Are, is that, is that the kind of thing? That's what, yeah. So, I mean, we shift over to, to these we try to shift over to these other kinds of reactions and treat this person as a problem, as an issue, as a as an obstacle in our a dangerous obstacle in our world. Is that the I think same that's as very treating, hard? Is that the same as treating them like a thing, or is that different from treating them like a thing? It's very close to treating them like a thing, and I don't think it comes to us very easily. I think it's very. Dif- I think these cases create a real tension for us. There, there is a range of cases, though, like uh, uh, with a child uh, or. Uh, say someone who's gotten off their medication and isn't kind of all there um you 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 might find yourself resenting resenting them but then you try hard to say no i mean i'm annoyed it's it's really upsetting that i have to deal with this uh i'm going to have to do something about it uh but annoyance is importantly different from resentment sure right Let's take some more callers here. Uh, Lee in San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Lee. Thank you. Um, I have a couple of comments. Um, isn't why, that, number one, why we have the insanity defense um, for the case that you just were discussing? Number two, um, resentment can be very motivating. It can compel people to be extremely creative and um, goal-oriented such as, you wronged me, I'll show you, I'll become a great writer, philosopher, whatever, businessman, okay? Um, And number three, I would like you to discuss self-blame and the phenomenon of of self-blame on a large scale, group scale, mass scale, and also on an individual level. Thanks, Lee. Let's start with the insanity. (laughs) Um, I mean... uh, we, a sociopath wouldn't necessarily be able to plea insanity, right? Because they might know the difference between right and wrong. They just don't could care. care less. So we're now in matters legal, and I am not an expert in matters legal. Uh, I think John is correct on that, but I'm not. Uh, so, so one thing I'm concerned to do is to distinguish quite strongly between uh, these emotional reactions that we have that I think mark responsible behavior and punishment. I think punishment has a very different, it's a very different sort of justification, a very different structure to it. And the insanity defense is a defense uh, against punishment. You said emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people want to distinguish between emotions and reasons. Some people think, I don't think, but some people think, you know, emotions aren't the kind of thing that can be rationally justified. When you say emotional reaction, you're not taking it, or are you taking it out of the realm of reasons? Definitely not. So how does, I mean, so can't we, I mean, what's the importance of, you know, I have a reason to shun you, blah, 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 versus what's the additional thing I get by having resentment, which goes beyond shunning, disliking, not wanting your company anymore, wanting you to change. 
I mean, is there some visceral element that's important here? I mean, it's uh, there. I think there is often a visceral element to resentment, but that's not what dis- the visceral element insofar as it's present, isn't what's distinguishing resentment from anger or sadness or anything else. It's the meaningfulness Yeah, of but it. I'm thinking about a, a judgment that you did wrong versus a visceral uh, reaction of resentment. I can judge that you did wrong without having a visceral reaction, right? That's right. And this, um, uh, I have a whole paper about forgiveness and how puzzling it is that we are able to forgive and what it takes to be able to forgive somebody rather than just get over your visceral reaction. Um, and one thing I think is that resentment marks a kind of felt threat posed by the wrong to your own standing. So our, our caller's second point was self-blame, but I think we're going to have to hold that over to the next segment. Is that right, Ken? I think that's right. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about freedom, blame, and resentment with Pamela Hieronymi, author of The Will as Reason. In our final segment, we're going to ask how we should deal with blame and resentment directed towards us by others, or I guess even by ourselves, Are we bound to meet resentment with resentment and blame with blame, or are there ways out of the cycle of resentment and blame? Coping with blame and resentment when Philosophy Talk continues. Is hatred a rational response to being hurt? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor, and our guest is Pamela Hieronymi from UCLA. So, Pamela, let's pick up with the the question, the second of the questions that our caller Lee asked about self-blame. I think that's a really interesting topic. Is self-blame just kind of a metaphor or a loose talk, or can we really blame and resent our own selves? Uh, I think we can, and I think we call that guilt. Uh, So... I. Again, guilt is a very rich word in the history of Western thoughts. There's lots of that's packed into it by Freud and others, but I think you can locate a, um, a piece of it that's just self-blame. So you know what? I think guilt is like one of the world's worst things, mm-hmm. especially sort of irrational guilt. I wonder something if you can distinguish. So look, it seems to me we're deter- we're kind of built to resent certain kinds of slights. Mm-hmm. We're kind of built to feel guilty about certain kinds of things. But it doesn't seem to me that... Uh, you know, guilt, even if it's justified, or or or, or uh, resentment, even if it's justified, it doesn't seem to me it's always the wisest thing. W- what do you think about that? Uh, what do you mean by the wisest thing? Well, the thing that would lead to the best outcome, that all things considered you should try to achieve, that a virtuous, rational person would try to do, you know, wise in the sense of the course of wisdom. Well, so the course of wisdom seems to me to be not necessarily to follow what brings about the best outcome. But what brings about the best outcome... The most valued, valuable outcome, okay. Um, so surely people can hang on to resentments and can be um, eating themselves alive with guilt and be in a very bad state uh, and can have lots of reasons to want to get themselves out of that state. Um, but uh, there's a difference between... Um, so say, say you're being eaten up with resentment... And I offer you a pill that will make it the case that you can no lo- you're no longer capable of feeling resentment or you're no longer capable of feeling guilt. Taking the pill isn't the same as forgiving That's yourself true. or others. Um, so I'm very interested in forgiveness when that's 
uh, appropriate and called for. And then it's just another question of if we had the technological ability to manage ourselves in and out of certain emotions, when would that be worth doing and when would it be abdicating some important part of our humanity, right? Well, so I, th- I think that's really what, what I'm going to ask now. I mean, you, you suppose, I mean, as a matter of fact, you've convinced us, and me at any rate, that blame and resentment can be appropriate, that they don't depend on supposing that the, the person blamed or resented has some kind of contracausal freedom. But the fact that they're appropriate doesn't mean they're always wise. So when is it wise to blame and resent someone? Or when is it when is it rational and when is it just kind of not irrational but but let it go? So I don't think that blame or resentment is voluntary. I don't think it's the sort of thing we decide to do because we think it's a good idea. I think there, again, are reactions to what we perceive as the quality of other people's wills towards us. So since we don't just do it because we chose to, the question of when it's wise, I think, doesn't easily part company with the question of when it's called for or prompted. We've got a caller here once in a way, and I think on this topic, Greg and Woodside. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Greg. Hello. I just wanted to ask, how do you get rid of these things? I've you know, been holding on to some... Um really bad revenge, resentment, and victimization for like three years, and I've just been amazed how every day it just haunts me, whatever, three o'clock in the morning or having after having my coffee, it's just, I just can't get rid of it. <laughs> Great. Thanks for that. Pamela, you got, I know you're a philosopher, not a psychotherapist, but uh, right. you know, philosophy can be therapeutic too, so. Right. No, I, I mean, I, I, I think that it's... Um, it's a great example of how these things aren't voluntary. You can know for yourself that this is making your life miserable and you can't just will yourself out of it. Um, and then I think it's going to be a very complicated question. So when you say you can't will yourself out of it, I, the, I when people say that sort of thing, I think, well, yeah, you can sort of will yourself out of it. You can't instantly, just by an act of will, get yourself instantly to out of it. But you can, as Aristotle says, put yourself in the company of good men who will right. train you. That is, and so you can put yourself in the hands of a psychotherapist who will help you. So there's some long, arduous process maybe that you undertake as an That's act right. of will. So isn't that... You can, I mean, you can't instantly will yourself. Out you of can it. manage your. You can you can manage yourself in different ways. Um, so, you know, we're very clever, technically able people. We can affect all kinds of changes in the world, and some of the changes we can affect in the world have to do with our own minds and our own psychology. My advice to Greg would be try to write about it. Write a little short story that that kind of uh, uh, is a story of how this person came to harm you and and how it did harm you. And you might find that that takes care of some of it. But let's focus on the other side of this blame, resentment thing. Suppose I'm the object of resentment mm-hmm. or the object of blame. What should I do? I suppose one thing is to just repent, but is that is that it? Just repent? Well, I think, I think it's uh, really interesting that a lot of times people's first reaction, it's very easy when you're, when you're the object of blame to think that you're uh, being criticized for a kind of performance failure. Like somebody is giving you a hard time for the fact that you hit the wrong note in your recital or that you missed the basket in the in the free throw contest or something. You were trying hard, you know, you screwed up, and now it can seem kind of mean for people to give you a rough time about it. Um, but to think that is to think is to miss that moral failing isn't a kind of personal failing that way. It's an interpersonal failing. What do you mean by that? Moral failing, I would have guessed it is a personal failing. It's you're failing to live up to what's demanded of you. Well, that's to treat this standard as something independent of the other human. So a moral failing involved someone else. 
And when you're uh, the object of moral criticism, there's a interpersonal relation that's needing attention and repair. And to just feel put upon because you're being hassled for your falling short of some p- perfect standard is to really, I think, miss the what you're being called to. You're being called to repair uh, the the interpersonal wrong. Of course. Now, you could think that somebody wants the interpersonal wrong, the interpersonal relationship repaired, and they're just wrong about it. They're the ones who need it. Or, or this relationship, this relationship uh, is one I could just walk away and say, well, you know what? You resent me. I resent. There was a former friend of mine. We just had a parting of the ways. I remember in high school, he went that way, I went that way. We never talked to each other again. I don't know if he was wrong or I was wrong. We just never talked to each other again. No reconciliation. Well, I mean, that sure, sure. It's all kinds of things, complicated things happen. That happens. Other times people try to give you a guilt trip. That's a different sort of thing to be the object of. Sometimes people are trying to make you, you know, hurt you because they're feeling vengeful. That's another thing. But, but those are additional <laughs> sorts of complicated situations so, but, to be in. So, so let's get to a, a, a big philosopher, Spinoza, who said to understand is to forgive. Um, is that right? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think that's right. <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> um, uh, well, if to understand all is to forgive all, there, then there would be no wrong. Right. Um, but there are excuses, right? There are excuses, and absolutely. what's the difference between an, 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 ex, an excuses explain... Right. I mean, they explain why they did something in such a way that, that you shouldn't resent or hold them culpable or something. What's the difference between an excuse that explains and, you know, uh, something and, and excuses that some, that are not right. right, that are not correct, not acceptable? Some excuses explain by showing how once you get more information, you see that no, there was no ill will. There was no disregard. And so that just makes the wrong go away. Um, other ex- doesn't make the harm go away necessarily. Not the harm. No, but the wrong. Right. Um, uh, you know, Justice Holmes said even a dog knows the difference between being kicked and being tripped over. Right? <laughs> right. So if you uh, if you uh, mm. if you understand, oh, I was just tripped over, I wasn't actually kicked. That's a kind of excuse. Other excuses work by showing that for one or another reason, um, though somebody was showing you disregard, that disregard doesn't matter as much as you thought it should. What's Be- the example of that? I'm not quite sure I know what you mean. Um, uh, so, so somebody who's under a tremendous amount of stress, right, and then uh, overlooks your interests. The fact that that person was under such stress shows somehow that that disregard didn't matter as much. So some people, some philosophers like Locke, think that if you're drunk or inebriated, uh, it wasn't really you that did it. Uh, others think that, well, at any rate, it's a pretty good excuse but lots of people think that uh, what someone does when they're drunk or inebriated or under stress shows it, that's the real self coming up. People hated Mel Gibson when he made anti-Semitic remarks, even though he was clearly drunk. Why? Uh, because they thought, well, that's the real Mel Gibson coming out. Uh, wh- wh- what's the right way to think about these cases? Uh, I think about them in a pretty simple way. That's the real Mel Gibson when drunk. Right? <laughs> um, so, and alco- I mean, alcohol is different, I think, than being under extreme stress. And so far as we know about alcohol, that it has the effect of, in- of lowering inhibitions. So that gives a little more sense to why people might think it's the real person. It's the real person. It's the person with inhibitions lowered. Right. Um, whereas stress has a different sort of effect on people. But, but shouldn't people get credit for their inhibitions? I mean, Mel Gibson may have worked, I mean, I don't want to pick too much on Mel, but he may have worked very hard to keep 
uh, the anti-Semitism he may have learned at uh, somebody's knee under wraps. Uh, sure. So, so in a way, drunkenness could be a bit of an excuse. Um, I, we get we get more information, and uh, so questions about the real person or the you know those seem to me really deep questions. What really because you know Freud taught us the the conscious self is just like the tip of a huge iceberg, and the real self is the stew of things. So I, I don't know. I'd love to have you back so we could talk about what's the real self. Do you have a view briefly about the real self at all? Uh, it's all of you. <laughs> all of you. So you're just a compl- all of you. You're just a complicated stew of drives Stuff. and desires. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. We're going to take it all. Okay. Take it all, relate to it all. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, on that complicated note, I'd love to have you back to talk about and explore that uh, complicated uh, stew sometime. But for now, I'm going to thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been great. Our guest has been Pamela Hieronymi. She's a professor of philosophy from UCLA. She's author of The Will as Reason. So, John... What are you thinking today? I mean, you're a human, right? Uh, I'm a human. I believe in the wretched subterfuge. I believe in the quagmire of evasion. Uh, But, of course, I don't think it's wretched. I don't think it's a quagmire. I think Pamela did an excellent job of defending it in a non-quagmire, non-wretched way. So, very, very good session. So, I don't know what I am about these issues. Sometimes I think, you know, it's just a fight over words. Because I sometimes think, well, the Kantians and the Catholics, they have it right. Well, our ordinary notion of freedom is this contra causal thing that you were talking about, this libertarian freedom where, you know, you're not determined by anything. And then I look at how we actually attribute moral responsibility, blame and resentment, and it doesn't seem to track that stuff. Then the conclusion I'm tempted to reach, well, freedom is a non-issue. Okay, maybe there is no such thing as freedom, but it was always a mistake to think that moral responsibility, uh, blame and resentment hinge on questions about freedom at all. Ken, I don't understand this concept of just an argument or a war about words. I mean, what, <laughs> what, what's more important? I mean, the Thirty Years' War was really a war about words, namely, uh, are, are the Germans going to call themselves Protestants or Catholics? Well, so uh, words are important. Well, that's true, and you and I both study them. But you know what? This conversation continues on our blog, theblog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is, Cogito ergo blogo, I think, therefore I blog. You can also follow our tweets on Twitter, and you can find out more by visiting our very active Facebook page. And last but not least, you can get the free weekly podcast of Philosophy Talk at our website, philosophytalk.org. Now, we're never going to resent Ian Scholes, our 60-second philosopher, so now we turn to his high-speed rants. Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, among the declared rights in the Declaration of Independence right after life and liberty is the pursuit of happiness. I mean, how Calvinist is that? Go ahead and pursue, depraved mortal. That's your right. Happiness itself, however, may not be yours to achieve. In the USA, fatalism and optimism are constantly at war beneath a cheerful American exterior. So often portrayed in television commercials for antidepressants, there is a dark underside which frequently needs to be treated with antidepressants. We say, where there's a will, there's a way. We are strong-willed people. We can do anything we set our minds to. Be all that you can be. Step up to the plate. Grow up here. Quit whining. Be yourself. Be your own boss. In these ongoing difficult times, these attitudes, strangely, have achieved great prominence. Certain among us are against immigrants, pension funds, unions, universal health care, big government, taxing the rich, the nanny culture, and recently, apparently, women having sex. These are all impediments, if sometimes fuzzy impediments, to our own self-reliance. And suddenly we become as self-reliant as all get out. All strains of the political spectrum are jumping on the self-reliant bandwagon, getting off the grid, growing our own, stockpiling food, buying weapons, buying self-help books, attending seminars, occupying, tea partying, open carrying, gobbling antidepressants, posting links on our Facebook pages, holding ourselves accountable, self-identifying as whatever the hell we want to be, victims no more, owning our issues, and turning them into strengths, getting all entrepreneurial, getting all 
DIY. Starting our own businesses. We're in it to win it. Dressing for success. Downloading apps. Buying local. Blogging furiously at Starbucks. Tweeting our personal progress. Setting up Tumblr pages. Crowdsourcing. Making digital scrapbooks. Power knitting. Multitasking. Snarking. Fostering communities. Having those tough conversations. Asking those tough questions. Making playlists for our iPods. Noodling on the iPad. Texting on our iPhones. Power texting on the Blackberry. Hooking up. Hanging out. Doing mashups. Skyping. Setting up wikis. Making it happen. Getting it done. Tracking and analyzing trends. Nibbling artisan gluten-free muffins. Power lunching. Strive for excellence. Boost your self-esteem. Achieve sustainability. Drill, baby. Drill. Take it to the streets. Get government off our back. Visualize success. It's a cacophony of self-reliant communities talking loudly to themselves. In spite of this, is anybody actually, you know, doing or making anything? We're all imposing our wills upon a world rapidly falling apart around us because you don't want to spend money on schools or roads. Keep your entrepreneurial spirit, my friend. Keep it to yourself. What the world could really use right now is a really good mechanic and a few well-paid janitors to clean up the mess. I gotta go. The Wisdom of the Ages, in a nutshell, from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2012. Our executive producer is David Demarest. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. The director of research is Laura McGuire. Thanks also to Chris Hoff, Merle Kessler, Dave Millar, Jimmy Tobin, Corey Goldman, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from the Templeton Foundation and from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.